0: Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast. I'm your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Chris Lindy, who is the Chief Compliance Officer and Executive General Manager of Operational Risk at National Australia Bank. Chris started his career off at PwC before joining Morgan Stanley in internal audit. In 2001, Chris worked in forensics at KPMG, both in Australia and London. After seven years with KPMG, Chris joined Deutsche Bank as a managing director, working in South Korea and also Singapore. 2015, he moved back to Big Four at Deloitte as a partner in risk advisory. In 2018, Chris joined NAB as CCO. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'd like to start off with a little bit about your early life and where you grew up.
1: So I'm from country South Africa, originally, as I'm sure you can hear from my accent. I grew up in a kind of small town, 30,000 people uh, from a farming background and I always had my sights on the big lights and the big smoke, as we used to call it, in South Africa of Johannesburg and and trying to build, get out of the small town and um, moving to the big city. I'm the youngest of five boys, um, so I've always been trying to search for my own voice in the cacophony of older brothers and it's always been a dream of mine to sort of play on the big stage, get out of the small town and see the world.
0: Interesting. So how did you go about doing that? How, you know, early life, how did you start that journey?
1: So it's quite interesting. When I, when I was at school, I went to a music school and uh, wanted to be a concert pianist. And um, cut a long story short, obviously, being the CCO, I'm not a concert pianist. Uh, but I met somebody really early in my teens who was a chartered accountant for my dad and his businesses. And he just seemed to have everything going for him. Um, Good career, good family life, um, sort of a really good balance between work and life. And he was somebody that I aspired to be. And took some advice from him when I think I was about 15 to set the subjects up that I had at school to get onto the path of studying to be an accountant. Um, at the same time, one of my older brothers was studying law and I took an interest in potentially becoming a lawyer or an accountant because there was also another family friend of mine who, of my father, sorry, who was our family lawyer. And between the two, I was, I was kind of torn between becoming either a lawyer or an accountant and went to university after doing two years in the national service in South Africa. I was two years in, in the Air Force. Um, I decided to do subjects that I could choose. So I did both law and accounting at university. And once I finished my undergrad, then made the decision to become an accountant. And it was – I read an article, I think, in my final year of my BCom which was around the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and the number of board members for listed companies on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange at that time, over 70% were either chartered accountants or had been chartered accountants at some point in their career. And I thought, well, if there's any way to get out of a small town, this is the journey that I need to get on. So I chose chartered accounting. And that's how I came to you know, make my first move overseas to, to London. So I did three years with PwC doing my articles um, for the first half of that, the first one and a half years in the small town where I grew up in. Um, I then took an engagement and moved to the Johannesburg office. And the day that I finished my articles, um, I think it was actually two days after I was on an airplane to London. So I think if you think back or if you You may know, your listeners may not know. The time when I was at university was when the government changed in South Africa. So, 1994, when the elections came, um, the sanctions were dropped against South Africans traveling and working abroad. So, I was one of the first generations or wave of South Africans that was able to go to the UK and and work. Um, My mom is British, so I was able to do it anyway, but none of my classmates were able to do it. So, we kind of all went over... um, and started working in London. That was the real, the draw card. Um, Just to give you an idea, I think in my final year, honours year at university, there were about 30 of us in the class, and more than half of us were post articles working in London, um, just because it was the thing to do. And that's when I got into working for Ernst Young, actually, before I joined Morgan Stanley. So those days, we had a two-year working visa, and I wanted to make sure that I i was – I should have said this earlier. I was very clear in my mind that I wanted to be a Big Four partner. And I was very clear that I wanted to work in forensic and specifically have a specialisation in financial services. Um, and how that came about was when I, when I was working in Johannesburg in internal audit, I did a review into a bank and I just was fascinated by the complexity and um, – When I moved to EY in London, when I landed, Behrings Bank happened. And the team that I was working with um, in London, the fraud investigation team, was the team that was investigating Nick Leeson um, in Singapore. I wasn't involved in engagement, but I just thought, you know, the stars have aligned. Here I have my chosen profession, what I like doing every day in financial services. Couldn't get any better. Um, but I was mindful that I had a two-year time frame on it. And so I did my one year at Ernst & Young and um, worked on predominantly frauds within financial services. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, probably through my whole career. I think hopefully most of us are. But I uh, bumped into the head of internal audit at Morgan Stanley. I was, I was actually on secondment with the FSA at that stage in the UK and he overheard me talking about the work that I was doing and, and they were interested in setting something up with an internal audit function around doing internal audits with a different lens, looking at them from a potential forensic um, perspective. And they offered me a job and I started there and did my, the second year of my two years at Morgan Stanley. And then um, I fell in love with a young Australian girl and I moved out to Australia and took a role with KPMG in forensic in, in Sydney. I absolutely loved it. It was um, a manager role and the the work in Australia very different to that in the UK. Uh, They're the, a little bit smaller in terms of the size of the engagements, who was working on them, um, but really fascinating uh, fraud investigations or... Um, the work around, you know, control breakdowns, whether we're fraud or whether they are not, it was, every day was different. And, and it, it's, it's kind of been the backbone of my career is, and I tell this to my team as often as I can, if you're coming to work every day and it's the same as what it was yesterday, you're in the wrong field. Um, and um, I, as I said, I absolutely loved those two years working in the Sydney office. And a chance came up for a secondment to, to London, to go with KPMG, which I which I took with open arms, and and that's when my career really took off. So I again just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and I worked on a fairly significant uh, investigation, which I think at that time was KPMG Forensics' largest ever investigation, um, which is a global review. I ran and managed the European and the Asian part of that review. It was for a an SEC investigation into an American conglomerate. And um, I I got to be in front of some very important people, some very famous names in the business world who are still very famous. And I think the one individual is in the top ten richest people in the world, um, American. Um, and I had a turning point in, in my career on that, that engagement. I was... Um, Sitting at a boardroom, giving the the findings of the you know, interim report on this, it was a, over a year the engagement, um, and this individual, this scene, the the actual owner of the company, um, walked over t- and sp- stood behind me, and I'd said something, I'd explained it in a way similar to the way that he'd be talking now, kind of kind of matter of factly, and and he said, "This is how I want you." to speak and it was a room full of lawyers and senior partners from the firm. Um, And I I don't think that the the facts are what they are. It was just the way in which I had said them, which I think resonated with him. And that kind of just gave me this boost of confidence as you, I'm sure you'd appreciate I was early thirties. And that's when I realized I wanted to stay in this field. And, and so then to, to become a partner in big four in London suggested that you spend some time in industry and, one thing led to another and I got a phone call from a headhunting firm who were looking for somebody to set up a forensic practice for Deutsche Bank in Asia. And and I took it and spent seven years with them. And I absolutely loved, as you've heard me say a few times, working with Deutsche. It was very different to the consulting world, obviously. Um, but I think a very true German bank where things just get done people say what they mean, um, act in a way that's professional yet courteous and it was a um, you know, sort of very go-getting environment and that was around the time of the GFC and spent seven fantastic years in Asia them, with them and then t- decided to bring my children home and let them have some surety here in Australia with their schooling and came back to Australia.
0: So you work with Deutsche Bank in, in Korea, South Korea and also Singapore?
1: Yeah, so I did two and a half years in Singapore in the uh, forensic role and then I did f- just over four years in South Korea as branch manager and chief operating officer for, for South Korea and that was something that was I'd never done before. I'd always been in a get on an aeroplane, go and fix it kind of role. I'd never really done a BAU um run an operational, have a fixed team of, of professionals who go to the same office every day. I must admit, I find that really hard at first. I, I, I think the first six months was great because it was all new, but then I sort of was twiddling my fingers and going, you know, what now? And and I had to create that, that sense of change um, in the role. And as I got more into the role and spent more time in the country, you know, I, I was taking Korean language courses, every day for two and a half hours every day. And I started to speak some Korean and understood it. Um, I just fell in love with the place and the role. And then, um, as I say, moved back to consulting back in Australia after four years.
0: And what was the driver behind leaving banking and then actually going back to consulting, which obviously you knew very well from early in your career?
1: So if I'm completely honest, um, circumstance, I, I... Being connected within the forensic world globally amongst the Big Four, um, I knew there was a role for me. I just I made a call to somebody I knew who said, "Look, yes, they're looking. They're looking to expand in the era of financial crime and specifically financial services." I think one of one of the things I've been lucky about in my career is because I've done so many different things, I can wear different hats. And even though I sat within the forensic practice looking at financial services, the fact that I understood how things worked. I understood the products. I understood how people thought around those products. That gave me an insight into anything in internal audits, whether it's in compliance or reg. I just, I kind of got it. I was quite lucky in that regard. That's a nice thing. When you're dealing with people who are under pressure, when something's gone wrong, they tell you everything. And so, you know, one of the things that I found different to the forensic world, to the internal audit world was – and no disrespect to your internal audit professionals, listeners, is you kind of have to solicit information out of those that you're working with. Whereas in the forensic world, most people are quite happy to tell you everything so that they can um, help you get to the bottom of where you're trying to get to, but also in a way kind of protect their roles because they want you to know that they had nothing to do with something that has gone wrong. So you learn very quickly what's going on in an organisation in that. Um, And then coming back to consulting was just, as I say, I knew somebody was the perfect storm they they were building their practice in financial crime and financial services. It just fell into the role. I was in Sydney for six months, and then a position came up here in Melbourne and said, you know, would you like to come down here and and you know build the practice out here in Melbourne? And I took it. And um, I must say, I I never thought I would love Melbourne as much as I had and and still do. And I absolutely fell in love with the place. I've always lived in Sydney. I've travelled through here for work um, in various roles. Um, but I have never really lived here on a permanent basis. But it's just an incredible place, Melbourne. It's really understated. Um, I know the people who live in Melbourne, they, they sort of yawn when I say how happy I was when I was living here. Um, it's kind of the hidden gem of Australia, I think. The, the climate is great. The people are fantastic. And and the work is just the same as it is in Sydney without the humidity.
0: Yeah. When when you went back to obviously risk advisory within Deloitte's as a partner, did you forecast that, did you feel that Australia was going to go through massive regulatory change both from a FCC and a compliance point of view
1: when you joined? I... Look, I think being a partner in a big four, I hoped that, that the wave that had gone through Europe and, and the US and, and Asia of um, an uplift in the regulatory environment would come to Australia. I had been not frustrated but but surprised that it hadn't occurred a lot sooner. Um, I knew it was inevitable that, um, that the regulators would start to um, ask questions differently to what we had before. Um, not to say that they never did, and and that the regulatory environment is is not the same as what is, was offshore, but I think the focus was a little bit different. Um, so I I wasn't surprised. I think it is, it's just the environment in which Australia was. They weren't affected by the GFC. They didn't really have reason to to want to change the way in which they were working. Um, but then once things did started to change, it was. It was not surprising that some of the shortfalls that had been that we have seen now in the financial services industry, um, you know, have come have come out in, into public eye.
0: And then 2018, you joined NAB as a CCO. Yes,
1: yeah, so um, NAB was uh, changed their their business model they, from second line, and they were looking to re- bring in a chief compliance officer. Um, they were searching globally for a candidate, and they asked me. To come in and just caretake the role as a partner and secondment, which I did for six months, and through that process they asked me if I would be interested in staying in on the role, um, and of course I I took it with 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 open arms. It's um it's a very unique role um to be in in the banking industry in Australia. Um, it's a it's a new team. Um, I, I effectively have been given um, a, a platform to put into practice, actually put into practice what I had been telling clients to do for many years and being kind of unique in many ways from seeing where others had failed through some of the frauds or um, investigation work that I'd done to see where I needed to focus more than potentially other areas. So it's been a very um, it's it's been a tremendous learning exercise for me, being able to execute on something that I've been you know theorising about and, and telling clients to do, implement for you know many years.
0: On the mentoring side, has there been a particular person or people that have been sort of key mentors to you throughout your career?
1: Yeah, so. Um, if you remember, I was telling you about a partner. When I first went to London, I worked at Ernst & Young. So the partner, David Sherman is his name, uh, who brought me into that team. So there's only a team of about 14 people. He's a ex-Zimbabwean, um, has been a, a huge influence over my career. So if I haven't made a move without asking him or calling him for his view, um, he's retired now Um but he he was hugely influential on me, and, and not, not only from a professional perspective, but personal. So one, one of the things that he taught me, which I've carried with me, is to be very personal with people. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So when I was uh, at university in South Africa, we had, I think, interest rates were 20-something percent, 21 percent. So my student loan was effectively doubling every four years. And uh, I moved to the UK. I wasn't earning very much as a, you know, first year out of articles um, accountant. I was making just enough to t- take the bus to work and pay my rent and have a cup of beers with my mates on Friday you know, afternoons. And um, the team was very small. They were very they were quite social. The work that we do in forensic is is high impact. So you work ridiculously long hours, and then you'll have a period of you know a week or so of downtime and you kind of have a life in between. And um, one Monday morning he called me in and he said, look, we noticed that you don't come out and you you don't socialise with us when we go out socialising. So I said, yeah, I know. And he said, why don't you? So I said, well, because I was brought up in a world where you buy rounds. So if you go to the pub on a Friday, you know, everybody takes a round and it's your turn. So I said, actually, I can't afford it. So I I didn't want to be put into a position where I was bumming from people and and not being able to put my own um, money in the pot and say, it's my turn. I said, I'd be able to do it for one round, but then I'd have to leave. So to save myself the embarrassment. I just didn't come. And he said, why? He said, why don't you have any money? So I said, because I'm sending a lot of money back to South Africa to pay off my student loan. Um, as well as my living year, and he said, you know, how much is it? And I, and I told him, it was effectively my one year's uh, gross income. And he said, come to my office, and he wrote me a check. And he Amazing. sat down and he said, you pay me back whenever you want. He said, said, you don't have to pay me any interest. There's no time when you have to repay me, but don't let this be the reason that you don't come for a beer with us after work. And I've never forgot that. And that connection between me and him and me, um, I brought through my whole career that personal connection between the people that you work with or whether they day one on the job or being here 35 years, it's the same to me. Having that personal connection, particularly in the work that we do, is so critical to anybody's success, my success and my team's success. And so that's why he's still a hugely significant part of my professional and personal personal life.
0: Interesting, very Interesting. With was there a significant turning point in your career when you look back? Was there a particular moment where you think, wow, that was really life-changing to where I've ended up today?
1: Definitely. I think at the the story I was telling you about sitting in the boardroom with the on the client in the states, that was definitely a turning point. I remember it like it happened yesterday, and it was what 15 years ago now. Um it was, it was pivotal for me from, from a number of reasons. I think the most significant one was recognition for the work that I had done and my team had done. So often when you do, when you work in big one organizations or you help clients from a consulting perspective, you, don't, you, you see the benefit of what it is that you've done, but you never really feel it. You never really get that client's passion or the business's passion for what it really means to them. And that, just that simple statement really had a profound effect on me, and, and I could see what it was that I was doing was making a difference or had made a difference to an individual. So I know, you know even my children ask me and I think most of us who are professionals um, who work in industry and financial services excuse me, financial services we don't often see the outputs of what we're doing. We've got, there's nothing really to show for it. Um, you know, my dad was in the building industry, and my brothers are. They make things. They, they, when they go, there'll be things there that have left f- with their mark on them. Um, I, I don't have that, and and so you, we work long hours, and we we do great work, and we have, you know, we spend a lot of time studying through university and dealing with people. But at the end, it's the relationships that you leave behind. It's the people that you deal with and what they think about you. That's really important. That's what we have to show. So for me, that was really a critical point for me. That's when I knew that I wanted to continue doing the work that I was doing, whether it be in industry or in practice. Um, But what it was and how I was doing it had changed. I could see what that had meant to somebody.
0: Has there been a significant sort of challenge in your career that, you know, you've had to overcome and, and, and how did you sort of overcome that sort of significant challenge?
1: Like, I don't think there's a day <laughs> that goes by that we, you know, those of us who work in, certainly in compliance or in consulting, don't have a challenge. I've had I've had a lot. Um, you know, I could think of some meetings that I've been to with some regulators globally, um... I've thought about a report that I didn't put a fact in that that basically changed the outcome of somebody's career. Um, There's a lot of things that that I face into every day, like we all do, that that have an impact on us. I think um, one of the ways that I overcome it is I I mentioned that I spent two years in the Air Force. Um, Around that time, Salarigo was... um, in a conflict with the um, just north of South Africa and internally, because that was um, just before the change in the government. So I had seen some things um, physically, and it kind of puts perspective on working. So if I'm faced with something difficult at work, I often think back to some of the challenges that I faced as an 18 year old and go, Well, it can't be, you know, what's the worst can happen? I can lose my job. Not great, um, but really, is it life-threatening? Possibly not. Um, so I have some perspective, but doesn't mean that I don't care and and I'm not affected by things when I get it wrong um, and, or when my team gets it wrong. So I think w- one of the things that I tell my team often is, I want you to get it wrong, but I want you to get it wrong with me knowing so that I can help protect the outcome as well as, them and me and, and that's really important and that's something that I learned when I was you know, 18, that you're not in it alone, you're going to make mistakes, things are going to happen, they happen to all of us all the time, it's how you deal with them that's important and that life skill that I learned as a young man has carried me all the way through my career.
0: Your team must really like that sort of approach because that sort of, I feel that that sort of breeds that whole element of having a go. And that if you make a mistake, learn from it, and and ensure it doesn't happen again.
1: I hope they do. I, I probably should ask them. Um, it, it it is very important to me. It is. We're we're in an environment where things change daily. The regulators change. The people, public opinion changes. Um, as I said, no day should be the same in our roles anyway. Um, I want them to feel that. I know I do. Tell them. Oh, they're probably sick of me saying it. Um, but I, I I need them to know, um, just like any of us who uh, leaders of people, that you're there to support them, and and if they don't feel that way, or if they don't feel that that's an environment that they don't feel supported, that I'm there to help them to find something that potentially is better suited to their needs. But it it is very important to me, it's, as it is from when I was working, and I have a boss, and and I know my boss has my back. Same thing. It's very important for me where I work that I have that sort of environment as well.
0: What do you see as the key attributes of an effective leader?
1: Um, I think I think everybody can be a good leader. I think if you are yourself, that's what people want. I think if if um, if I think back to some of the, the the great partners that I've worked with in Big Four um, through my career. The, the part that sticks in my mind about who they are is I know who they are. I know them as individuals, and I think that makes a good leader. When people know you as an individual and they feel comfortable in speaking to you, not as a mate, but as somebody that they respect, but have the um, ability and feel comfortable enough to actually speak to you and call things out, uh, I think is important. That, that, I think, is the key to really good leadership. Have the... Uh, wherewithal and probably the respect of your team to, for them to say things that you may not agree with. I, I I often say this in my leadership meetings. One of the things that I, a really good meeting for me with my leadership team is when we spend most of the time disagreeing with each other. Um, because if we don't disagree with each other and we think we know everything when we go to the business or we go to a regulator and they ask us, then we did dead in the water. You want to have that experience of being challenged on your thinking. And you want to have, you want to set an environment or create an environment where people feel like they can speak like that. Um, obviously, professionally, and and that's important. So I think as a leader, fostering that sort of environment is is really important for to for future leaders. You want people to be honest. You want them to be yourself. Bring yourself.
0: Do you feel national service back years ago laid some foundations to your
1: leadership style now? Um, Maybe I, I I don't know if it's a South African thing or national service but I, I tend to be quite matter of fact um, not tend to be I am matter of fact um, I, th- I think in certain environments in certain situations that works really well it doesn't work well in all situations so I think from my, my national service experience definitely that was I will tell you you will do so that doesn't that doesn't work now It may have worked 20 years ago in working that doesn't uh, work in um at all Um, and i wouldn't want somebody to just be a yes man and just do what i say yes there are certain things that need to get done and those are tasks that we have to do that's different but but i i like the challenge so i think it's it's taught me how to do that if i need to and through the years of experience on dealing different regulators in different countries and different um people throughout the world has taught me the other side of that which is to be open and understanding and listen, be a better bus, uh, listener. Um, I, I think that um, being a South African that sometimes can be, um, that, that may not ring true for some people if they think about South Africans, because most people seem to think that, um, you know, we're kind of arrogant and we know a lot of, you know, we think we know everything. Um, I think it's the way we speak and how we raise. raised. It's it's just a very matter-of-fact country. I think actually, probably we're more humble than than what people most people would think we are.
0: What do you look for when you're hiring for your team?
1: I, I'll tell it a story in a story way. That's probably the best way. Um, so I, if, with senior candidates, I like to ask three questions. I'm going to give away my secret. Don't, don't
0: give away too many secret secrets. Here, Chris.
1: Um, but they are all. By the time somebody comes to me to be, um, you know, interviewed, they they've got the qualification. They've they've obviously have the experience, and they could do the role with their eyes closed. So when I interview, I interview the person, and and I have three questions that I asked which is to get to know the person. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't want to give it away. Um, but most people are, are shocked by the three questions, and and it's deliberate my the, the way in which I ask the questions is deliberate because I want to see how they act under pressure it 's not the answer that i 'm interested in it 's how they react and how they respond um, and then my follow up question is um, you know to give me an example around the first question so um, the first one is situational, and then I want an example in real life of you know where it may have happened and again it's it's about the person and how they looking at me, how they're answering because that person is going to be in my role one day potentially and a regulator is going to be asking them a question or a uh, external counsel will be asking them a question or some judge or a customer and you just don't know. And so you need to have the wherewithal on how you're going to answer. And then um, one of the questions is, you know, what would other people say about that situation? You know, would they agree? Would they agree with what you've just told me? And uh, most people would say yes, they would. So then, I've, my last question is: Okay, well, let's call one of them. Let's pick up the phone and call. And <clears throat> and I've only had um, all the years that I've been doing this sort of question. I've had one person who said yes. Let's call them. Normally, I stop there because again, it's, I'm just interested in the reaction. Um, and, that, and that was a lady here in Melbourne who was worked with at Deloitte and now works here at NAB. Um, But again, it's more, I'm I'm looking for the person. I'm looking for somebody who thinks differently, reacts in a way that I think would be appropriate because the other stuff we can teach, um, but that core skill of who you are as a person is very, very important to me when I hire.
0: If you're going to restart your career, what, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself?
1: Um well that's a that's a very interesting question. I I I don't think I that I've made many moves in my career that I'm not happy that I've done. I think I've always made the moves which I think were the right ones for my career all the way through. Um I think earlier on in my career I probably would have asked more. I would have I would have been more inquiring about um those who I've engaged with, those clients that I've worked with, as opposed to being um, a little bit more forward and forceful in the work that I did. So so forensic and fraud investigation is kind of a unique discipline because you, you, you're you dealing with clients who've gone through something quite significant. Um, people, um, if they've perpetrated a fraud in an organisation, those who work very closely with that person feel very f- affected and, um, in a way that you know, if you they may say, you know, I've known this person for years. I never would have thought they would have done that. So they kind of feel very um, touched in a negative way about it. And you can you can see that in the way that when you interview them and or meet with them. Um, I think it, earlier on in my career, I would have been a little bit more sensitive to that. I would have I would have asked questions a little bit differently, the way that I'd probably do now. I, I, I wish I'd have learned earlier on in my career.
0: Interesting. There's obviously, when we look at the market now, there's very strong demand for compliance professionals, especially as a result of the Banking Royal Commission. You've worked in, you know, different roles within the three lines of defence. Why would you recommend someone undertake a career within compliance?
1: I think you've heard me say it a few times. No day is the same in compliance. No day is the same. Uh, I think it is just a fascinating discipline to be in. You can do anything if you've worked in compliance because you will see everything. Um, the, the, the part that I like most about compliance is that if I just take my team, there, is, there are a handful of people in my team who are compliance professionals 20 plus years. But the majority of my team are from a diverse background. So they're either lawyers or they're accountants or they are business um, bankers or they're bankers or some don't even have any qualifications. Some are straight from school. Some are ex-tradesmen. And the reason why we have that is because I want the diversity of thought. That diversity of thought and way of working is critical to the success of any compliance function, I believe. You need to have people who don't think the same way. Um, because I want, as I said in my leadership teams, I want that challenge between people all the time because we don't know everything and we shouldn't know everything. But what you want is to have different ways of asking the same question or different ways of thinking about the same thing. And because what that does is it it, it gives the business and those who we advise on and those who we're reviewing, it gives them a different perspective to what they're doing with every day. So the, what the, that's the one thing I love about compliance. Also, I think the opportunity, particularly as you said in Australia, is immense. I think the ability to come in and make a meaningful impact for customers and individuals, those of us who bank with banks, is tremendous. And that personal satisfaction, knowing that you're making a difference, is, is something that you can't put a price on. And also, um, you're joining a team or a team of compliance professionals. So when I talk compliance, I'm talking as well as financial crime compliance. I'm talking across the full discipline um, of people who think similar to you, but may have a different, even a different opinion about, about things than you do. So the way in which you interact with even your own colleagues is going to be different. The way that you deal with the business is going to be different. And the nice thing about compliance too is that you can look into any area of the bank. So if you're working in in my compliance team, you can be working in markets, you can be working institutional, you can be working uh, consumer or business, and you can jump between the two and you can have a, d- a double in financial crime. Wherever it is that you think that you'd like to get some experience, you can. That's the nice thing about working compliance as well.
0: When you look at your career, you've worked in many different sort of senior positions. How have you managed that, the, the work pressure and the stress that that come with those roles of being a partner and a CCO now?
1: So I think, and you remember I told you that I was, wanted to be a professional musician or p- concert pianist. Um, I play a lot. So I, I used to play semi-professionally in a band in South Africa and in London for a few years. Uh, so I still write and um, dabble a little bit in the, in the evening. So if I've, I've had a really tough day. My kids know that I have because I'm banging on the piano for, for an hour. Um, I, t- I exercise uh, as much as I can. Um, but one thing that I do do is I don't look at my phone after work. So I, I went through a phase where that sort of consumed my daily life when you know Blackberries first came out when I was working in London and we just fell in love with those things. And um, it became all-encompassing, you know, all just literally controlled my life. And then when I moved back to Australia five years ago and I made a commitment to myself that I was going to switch off after work, and I would give my number out uh, so I have a personal phone and I have a work phone, and then i 'd give my personal number out to only one or two people if they really need to get hold of me, they would call it, and no one 's called it in in five years and um, that 's made a huge difference. It was very, very difficult at first because you it's it 's almost a habit of looking at your Blackberry or your iPhone. Um, checking up on emails so that you're not bombed with a whole bunch in the morning, uh, the next day. But it's it's really helped me change the way that I think about working. It also gives you the ability to think about things differently, because when you if you're involved in something all the time, all the way through, and you don't take a step back, you you don't see things differently. You don't think about things in a different way. So I, I, it's actually helped me in more ways than one. But certainly from a, a stress perspective, although I don't, to be honest, I don't really um, think I get stressed. I, I f- sometimes I feel time pressure. Maybe that is stress, around, but I don't feel stress around deliverable or doing something or getting something done or sitting in front of somebody that's senior. I might be a bit nervous and have butterflies, but I'm not, it's not something that I would have sleepless nights over. Because usually when I talk to somebody on something that I've done or written, I've checked it 20 times and the facts are what they are. So that speaks for itself. Um, So those days that I do feel the pressure of, you know, it's too much going on, I just need to take a step back, that's when it really makes a a big difference to me.
0: So passions outside of work, music, piano?
1: Um, Oh, I am recently engaged, um, so second time around. So you've heard me say that I've got – Three kids. So I, I love my kids. They, I moved to Australia for them. They they're based in in Sydney. Um, my kids first and foremost. My my family is very important to me. Um, actually, I I'm I'm trying to get a little bit more into charities here in Australia. It's one of the things I love about Australia. It's it's everybody does it. Um, it's the, you know the the working where you work often facilitates it. NAB is fantastic at that. They create, even Deloitte was, um, charitable days, working for charities, uh, taking time off work is is something I'm trying to do more of. Um, I think one thing that I'm missing is golf. So when I was, I've always been an avid golfer. I've played my whole life. Um, When I was in Asia, I played less. When I was in Korea, I played a lot of golf. Um, love that about the Koreans. They love the golf. Uh, but since I come back to Australia, I've played a handful of times. And then in January, I got a phone call from one of my old university mates to say there's a four ball short of a three, short of one. Uh, would I like to play? And I've, I must have been kissing every green of, across the whole 18 holes because it was just so good to be playing golf again. And there's such great courses, yeah, in, amazing in Australia. courses, aren't there? Um, Where the courses better, Melbourne or Sydney? Uh, well, I've I've been spoiled. I've played. Um, it's a loaded
0: quote qu- question there, Chris. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've played. Um, well, I think the wind blows less here in Melbourne, or certainly the times that I've played down here in Melbourne. Um, now it's hard to say. All I, all I know is I don't care if it's pouring with rain outside or as hot as hell. I'll still be out there with a five iron hitting it off deck. I'm just I just absolutely love the golfing, but I need to do more of that.
0: Target handicap.
1: Uh, I was officially a 16, so I'd like to get down to single figures, but I need to play at least once a week. Yeah, it's all about practice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, look, Chris, thank you so much for providing a really very insightful journey. I think it's amazing the, the what you've gone through over your career, and um, interesting to hear your views around leadership, around mentoring, uh, and also your thoughts on you know compliance as a career going forward for p- individuals.
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks.
0: Thanks. for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.